it's really weird. It's like a confident humbleness. It's a, it's a contradiction where you're confidently humble, but kind of like a Zen monk might, might have that kind of a thing where the humbleness gives you confidence in a certain sense. It gives you confidence because you're not having to prove whether you're right or wrong. You're saying it's not so important. Greetings, future fossils. We are obviously all in the thick of such a torrent of extraordinary transformation and change and wonder and mystery. And I cannot (laughs) be more plussed than to have Kevin Kelly back on the show for the third time to talk with me about his new book. He is a wizened elder uh he's totally holding torch as far as i'm concerned his book excellent advice for living wisdom i wish i'd known earlier is uh really quite a thing and here we are talking about it in what i think you will find to be a punchy and deep and nutritious interaction that i hope will inspire consequential, long, slow, deep, anchored movement in your life. And with that, thank you for listening. I really hope you're subscribing. I hope you're supporting the show. Uh, Everybody else who has been, you are dear and near to me. And I want to give a special shout out to Dearnit for buying my music Mossy for becoming a Patreon supporter. Cody Kuyak, always, always buying music. Nico for becoming a Patreon supporter. Amy Rose for buying music. Radical Brett Minster full of it. <laughs> David G. Therapy. John Roger Kirk. Wow. Thank you. And Alex Feldman, as always. Slow dancing fool dismal for becoming a Patreon supporter. Y'all are wonderful. Everyone is wonderful. I hope you're in a good way. My suspicion is that you'll be in a better way after listening to this deep well of wisdom from Kevin Kelly. Enjoy. Thank you. Please continue to support me and my family and all of the creative projects, including this fire hose of AI music videos I've started putting out for my album, the Age of Reunion, which is a work of over a decade, and you can find all this stuff on YouTube. I think you'll enjoy it. And the Jurassic Park Book Club has begun. It's not too late to join in. We're going to have our second call on June 13th. And then, in tandem with the Future Fossils Book Club for The Lost World, I will be hosting a series with Jeremy Johnson at NeuroLearning starting July 18th on Jurassic Worlding. And this will be a much, much more in-depth and more interactive, deeper, richer, and more intense, studious offering. I'll share more details about that soon, but it'll be really interesting to allow people to take more agency in this conversation than they have had to date. Anyway, thank you very much. Here we go. There we go. Yeah, that's better. 
Hey, thanks for folding me in on this. This was, uh, this is a real treat of a book. Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's weird. It's like some of these feels like I'm listening to myself. And then some of these, I'm just, some of these really took me by surprise. And overall, this is definitely something that (laughs) when you start, when you have the audacity to name a book, excellent advice, then you think, all right, that's like a Ron Swanson putting the ad, no, cut to the chase. But really is a it really yeah. is quite a compendium. So I guess maybe the right place to start, and you've been on this show twice already, but this is a different kind of conversation with you than we've had. The conversation would be about the backstory of this project. And of let me just embed our whole conversation and this book in something else, which is uh, you're on the board of Long Now. And you're a parent and I'm a parent. I mean, your kids are my age, but regardless, the sense of receiving wisdom and passing it on. And I'd love to hear where you are in all of this and what motivated to do this, and then we'll get into the book itself. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm really delighted to be here to tell a little bit of story about how this began. I think of wisdom as an elevated perspective aimed at maybe the true good and beautiful, aimed at something good. But it's the elevated perspective that we call wise, taking the longer view, which ties into the Long Now Foundation, which is trying to promote long-term responsibility, long-term imagination. And I think part of what I'm, my, what advice is in general, what wisdom is, taking a longer view, elevating your perspective on things, understanding that setbacks are, can be overcome, all those kinds of things that you get with a long view. Optimism, actually. So that's what I would say that I became interested in was ways in which you could increase the good in the world by helping my kids and people around me shift their perspective to have a longer, wider perspective on things. And when you did that, I think it's easier to prosper, it's easier to be happy, it's easier to be content, it's easier to accomplish things. So the wisdom component is tied, in my eyes, to the kind of bigger, wider, longer perspective. And then you've got this, this, it's just each page is, it's pithy. Yeah. So at what point did you start collecting these? Yeah, so I have been collecting similar kind of quotes from other people all my life because I liked the form factor. I liked this little seed, this little mind grenade, this little compressed zip file that um, you would get in a really good quote that would say, yeah, that's true, and then it would surprise you a little bit, ideally. There would be a little shift in it, and you'd have something, and then maybe it would be memorable. And I was collecting them because I wanted to repeat them to myself. So I was writing these down. It's like, here's something that's important. I need reminding about it. So I want it in a form that I could remind myself with it. And that reminding is really what this is because a lot of this advice is, I would say half of it has been channeled from the ancients, from the Stoics and the Bible and elsewhere. Who knows where they got it from? It's been their grandfathers. And that is a bulk of, of it. Um, 
put it into my own words, put it into a way that's in the vernacular, which is basically a tweet. And I've been writing those down all along. And then at some point, I realized that I had other things to say, practical stuff about if you're going to buy tools, buy the cheapest tool you possibly can and earn your way up to the more expensive through using it, and you'll know what to buy. That's a little contrary to what some, what I heard growing up, and but it's been borne out. And other people like Adam Savage, who are tool users, agree with this. So I started to write those down in the hopes of conveying them to my kids, to whom we did not give them very much advice like this. We were trying to model the behavior rather than telling them, because I don't think kids listen to their parents, what they say. They listen to, they pay attention to what they do, not what they say. And But I wanted, I felt there was a value in having it written down as a reminder, something they could remind themselves with it. And there were things that I wished I had encountered. And so that was the other, the other motivation was trying to put down things that I wished I had heard, not just model, but I had heard when I was younger. And I would, would once a year go through my brain thinking, what do I know? And then I would try and take this complicated thing and reduce it down to a sentence. And if I and I would spend most of my time trying to eliminate words, restating them, trying to it's like poetry, trying to compress it, trying to say it in a way that hadn't been said before, trying to say it as clear as possible and yet not say everything because I was trying to reduce the words. That's where most of my time was spent was the compression part of this, getting down all that stuff so that it could be reduced to a sentence. There was someone recently said. People don't actually remember books. They remember the sentences in a book. And so this, uh, this is a book of sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Someone says the Bible without stories, which is also true. Most books of advice are filled with stories because story is the best way to tell, convey anything. But I'm just a horrible storyteller. So I play to my strengths, which is writing telegraphic, compressed mind grenades. And so I went all the way and just, I'm just going to have only pithy aphorisms and adages and maxims, and that's it. No stories. It's interesting because a lot of the stuff in this, I'm going to start zipping through and pulling up a couple of these. A lot of this seems to undermine itself, which mm, I, interesting. I, 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 about that. I appreciate. Like, for instance, experience is overrated. Most breakthrough accomplishments were done by people doing them for the first time. Therefore, when hiring, hire for aptitude and attitude, and then train for skill. My God, yes! Okay, as someone who is, as my old friend Chance Roberts in Texas likes to say, is unemployed right now. I wish people took this more seriously, but like, beside that's beside the point. It's you're sitting here on the perch of experience and saying experience is overrated. And then later you, you say something about, uh, imagination. Let me see. There's the anecdote to fear. Oh no. Although I, I, (laughs) you and I have both, I've spoken a lot about curiosity and fear as let's see. Yes. Anything real begins with the fiction of what could be. Imagination is therefore the most potent force in the universe, and you can get better at it. It's the one skill in life that benefits from ignoring what everyone else knows. 
Right. I've always said imagination is our greatest natural resource. Okay. But then I, I was like, yeah. but you have to say, but you have to remember it. So actually attention is our greatest natural resource. Sure. Yeah. But at any rate, to your point, to imagine does involve, I've been doing this. Okay. What do you think? What do you people think I should be doing? And people are like, I've received a lot of advice I've had to ignore lately. And that piece that the one skill in life that benefits from ignoring what everyone else knows. <laughs> it's okay. So this book is it's doing what a good teacher should do, which is obviating itself in a way, I think. Well, okay, yeah. No, I think you should pay attention to advice. One one of the pieces of advice in this book, by the way, is that when someone tells you that something is wrong, they're usually right. But when they tell you the solution to it, they're usually wrong. So there's like the bits of advice that telling you that there's a problem that you should be paying more attention to X or Y is useful, is necessary. That is good advice. But the solution to them is so specific to your everything that you may know, to the 98% of you that's invisible, to all the other things going on, that usually the people are going to be wrong about what is actually the solution, what works. And that's in general because it's we can always see the problems easier than we can see solutions. And that's why there is more pessimists than there are optimists because seeing the problems is easy and cheap. Seeing solutions is difficult and dear. And so I do think there's different kinds of advice and the vices that are pointing out something that's worth paying attention to can definitely be right. If they're suggesting an uh, a solution, they're like most likely for yourself, they're most likely wrong. So you can ignore it. I liked this one in particular because I, I find myself trespassing. We're not <laughs> trespassing, but in, in liminal spaces, move, uh -huh. like finding out that somebody decided after they towed my car that they needed to put a no parking sign there, yeah. this kind of thing. To move through a place you may not be permitted act like you belong yeah. there. Well, I'd love works. to just let you riff on that. That for works for sure. Yeah, you just, I do a lot of talks and crashing another conference nearby was something I learned from Alvin Toffler, the great futurist. Hi. You go to one conference and you then you crash the one next door because you'll learn all kinds of things about something you had no idea that you were even interested in. You probably aren't interested in it. That's another bit of advice is be curious about things you're not interested in. So I'm curious about things I'm not interested in. And that's one of the, that was one of the best ways to do it was just to crash and walk in and just pretend that you're supposed to be there, that you you deserve to be there. And the less that you looked around, the less careful you were, then the more nonchalant you were, the better. And that's true about crashing weddings, which I would do when I was photographing <laughs> in Asia. Just pretend that I'm the official photographer, even though I'm not. And I've seen that I've seen that at work in plenty of other examples of people going into buildings or whatever where they aren't supposed to be, but nobody will stop you if you or march forward or late and you've got to get somewhere. Yeah, I, rem I remember once I my I had brought my now wife to a music festival and she had an a backstage pass. Yeah. And 
somehow she got turned away from the dinner line at the artist's uh-huh. line backstage yeah simply because she didn't feel like she belonged and they <laughs> suspect they, they thought she was suspicious <laughs> you're like, you're acting like, like you don't belong here. So yeah, you don't yeah, belong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you clearly you're not here for the right reason. I was like, oh my god, Nikki, please. Yeah. But yeah, okay, here's another one. And this is a big one. The foundation of maturity. Just because it's not your fault. Just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. Yeah. So I would I mean that that sends roots out in all mm-hmm. kinds of directions. I'd love to hear you riff on that. Yeah, too. this is the idea that we take it from being a homeowner's, whatever it is. A tree falls on your property. It's not your fault, but you got a responsibility for dealing with it just at that level. You can't just walk away from it and say, it's not my fault. I don't deal with it. Or there's something that happens at work where, again, it could be someone who works with you or for you and they do something and it's actually you're the leader or the manager and it's now your responsibility. So there's that level of it. There's also internally where, again, it could be an accident or it could be something in your genes that gives you something. It's okay. I've been a good boy. I've been doing all the right things. Now I have this thing. It's not my fault, but I'm responsible for it. And so there's often said in a different way, which is, I think I said it elsewhere in the book, this idea that it's not what makes your life, what makes your character, it's not the things that happen to you, because we have no control over that. It's our responses to the things that happen to us. That's our story. That's what our life is. It's not what happens to us, whether we were born into a household that has abandoned a father who abandons us, or we've got or poverty, or there's an uprising, or there's something that happens to us we have no control over that we have no that's not our fault but our responsibility to it is our reaction we are responsible how we react for and we have to and we acting we're responsible for our life we're responsible for the consequences of the things that happen to us the last time you came on the show we were talking about your book vanishing asia and I remember once upon a time, 11 years ago, when I was unconstitutionally searched in Texas and brought up on cannabis charges, and I chose my lawyer on the basis that he struck me as someone who had read the Tao Te Ching. Uh-huh. And here on, on page 66, you have this quote, your best response to an insult is, you're probably right. <laughs> Often they are. Right. And this is, I love that this is this again with this sort of how to inherit a thing, how to like how to carry right. it and pass it. The, the, the Aikido of right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it takes all the blow. It takes all the hate is just withered because, yeah, you're right. And what do I do about that? Yeah. It's what's the word I want? This also goes to this other bit of advice about if you do screw up something, if you chastise yourself in front of the engraved more harshly than they would. That can also suck a lot of the wind out of their ire and their anger because, yeah, it was screwed up. I, I did the stupid thing. I cost you money. It was, I hurt you. It's like you, if you own up, you 
if you fess up, you take that power and you are responsible for it, you shift you shift the universe a little bit and you are again you say you inherit that so that can actually sustain you and making helping you go forward rather than being dragged by others. It's like more of like you're taking control of the situation. You're owning up for it, maybe even more severely than what they would, and then you're going forward. There's a little reverse of that in my advice for kids, which is for parenting, which is what we've found, is have your kids be involved in creating the punishments for any infractions in the family. And when they do that, those kids are going to be much stricter <laughs> than we were, much harsher <laughs> punishments. But they buy into it, okay? They're into it. They're, they're, they've been participated in this, and they are going to be aware of it. And man, that, we found it very effective in that is, okay, yeah, we have a little family thing, okay, here are the rules which we want to have consequences for. What should the consequence be if you break it? What do you suggest? That's a very revealing conversation. On children, also then, you say, <clears throat> when a child asks an endless string of why questions, <laughs> the smartest reply is, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> Which I love because, okay, Louis C.K. has had that bit about why algorithm. I don't know that bit, I'm sorry. Oh, it's a, the kid asks why, yeah, it's yeah. like, why this, right. why is the sun? And then and at some point, he's finally, I don't know. And it's like, why? Because I'm not that smart. Why? Because my parents had me in the back of a car. Like, why? It's like, I'm the, and it's just like, he, he unravels himself entirely by just like supplanting himself to this, to the thing. And I was like, I'm for it. I, yeah, yeah. I love serving the why. But, but in your case, this is cute because yeah. it, it really does. It does exactly what we were talking about a moment ago. In that it redirects the energy to yeah. the kid. Right. And it says, all right, let's give you some agency here. Right, exactly. Well, let's see what you think. Right. And, and one of the, again, with this, this motif I'm noticing here is that in dispensing advice, you are also encouraging people to elicit their own intelligence. Yes. That's what I meant by a seed where you unpack it. So this is kind of like a, a hint. These are hints, and you have to do some of the work of applying it to yourself. That's you, these are hints without the story. So you need to write the story. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm lazy. You write the story. I'll give you the hint. I'll give you the prompt. Well, prompts maybe the better word of the moment. These are prompts. So let's see. How you've this book has been out for how long now? A month. Not even a month. It was May 2nd. So, yeah, almost a month. Just about, yeah. And in that time, how have people responded to this? What's interesting is that in, in the course of conversation about it, usually we'll bring up some of their favorites. There's been like a 2% or maybe 0% overlap in people's favorites. That was a complete surprise. Like the ones that you mentioned? Nobody else has mentioned those. Okay. So that was like a real joy was to have that breath, that reach that happened because I did not expect that. 
it's a joy because the reason why, because I couldn't choose between all my children and I put them all in because I really stood behind them all. So that really made me happy. But it was a surprise. I think the other, in terms of think of another thing I learned from this was I was unsure in the beginning about how effective the format was. But as I hoped and ex- expected that kind of the, this collection of, an, of a kind of uncategorized set of little zip files, little aphorisms, really did work their magic in, this, in, in the same way it worked on me. I liked it because it was working on me. And there was another kind of confirmation from the days of Wired to go with what works for me. And that was a confirmation about that, that trying all different arrangements like this, there's something here about this working in its format of this sequence of a variety of these, where your brain is, this is what I got from Holworth Catalog. There's enough on the page that your brain is doing some associative, subconscious associative work between them that is in a kind of enjoyable thing that is hard to articulate, but there's something that happens when you jump from one to the next. It's like you're making kind of connections between them, yourself, and that worked. So that was another thing that I would say I got confirmed was this idea of doing it. And I got there, by the way, from another bit of advice in the book, which was prototype things. So I made different literal bound prototype books. This is a little smaller format. Oh, and my original ones had doodles in them. For some reason, the publisher, the U.S. publisher did not go with them. The Italians will go. So <laughs> I, was, I was prototyping this to test out it to work. And that is another confirmation that you want to prototype your way to greatness. Iterate many different versions. Keep building on it. Try out as close as you can the entire product. Go the whole way. You write the first draft of the entire book that, they, that you will throw away. You do different scratch versions of a song that you throw away. You make a whole animatronics version of a movie. These days, they make a movie, not just with storyboards, but they go on to prototype it with animatronics. And they film it with the soundtrack, the whole thing, the whole movie. And they throw it away. So that idea of prototyping the book, again, I got confirmation that works. It's funny that you say that. This is an aside, but I was, it sounds like you and I have both watched maybe Light and Magic. Oh, yeah. On Disney Plus, talking about Phil Mm -hmm. Tippett and Dennis Murren. Mm -hmm. and, And I'm in the project of the early stages of writing a book about how the digital has spilled out into the world and, and Jurassic Park seems so central to that. Mm-hmm. And that, that piece of, yeah, they were simultaneously having Phil Tippett run the stop motion dinosaurs while they were running a parallel skunk works. And of course, it's, it's an affront to the people involved at that scheme when they're disrupted by their own internal mechanism. That's a very common thing in Hollywood is all kinds of things are made and never used. Sets built and abandoned. That, that not, it's not uncommon to do that. And that's why they're great. That's how you make something great is you're willing to do that kind of a wastage. It's very inefficient, but that's inefficiency is necessary for creativity. 
you have to, yeah, you have to write words. If you're going to write a book, you have to write tons and tons of words that you know could be thrown away. And you have to be completely at ease with that of taking or photography books where you go the whole way and you do the assignment and they never use it or you don't use your own pictures, whatever. It's that wastage is a necessary part of great creativity. You have to be willing to. And part of where you can do that is you get the confidence by doing something on a regular basis so that you know that there's more where that comes from. It gives you the kind of freedom to throw something away. It's because I've done this often enough, you say to yourself, that I can make more of it when necessary. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be precious about the stuff that will be expensive. We'll just consider that part of the budget. And the psychological aspect of it is that we'll just produce more of it because we can always produce more. Absolutely. Yeah. I came to that relatively late in my game. Yeah, exactly. It took me a <laughs> long time. It was like the idea of making a share that would make a prototype of a share and then throw it away, go the whole way and finish it. That was like, that was such a big deal, just making the chair. So now I realize that that's what I'm anticipating. I'm going to go the whole way. I'll make something in cardboard first, then you make it in plywood, and then make a drawing, cardboard, plywood, and then we'll make the final thing. That is how you get there. So that iterative thing, there are two of these that I want to I hold in tandem here. One is when you are young, have friends who are older. When you are old, have <laughs> friends who are younger. Yeah. I've always been, that's been my intuition from day one. Uh-huh. I've always been the youngest guy in the room. And now I'm starting to be older among younger yeah, and yeah. I'm loving it. And then there's also, you are only as young as the last time you changed <laughs> your mind. Now yes. I want to go back to the inevitable. Uh-huh. And yeah. how one of the things that you claim as inevitable over the de- the coming decades that we're now actually living through and, uh-huh. and it's bearing out is that, and I think we perhaps discussed this in one of our earlier conversations is moving from placing a premium on answers to placing a premium on questions and a state of constant learning, yeah, lifelong yeah, yeah. learning. And I look at you and I look at Stuart Brand and I look at anybody in Long Now, yeah. all the silverbacks yeah. are strangely, they have a pueriternus thing going on. <laughs> and so what I would love to speak to the maintenance of a childlike mm. curiosity and awe yeah. and appreciation of this world and yeah. a willingness to explore it. I think there is, and that is something I learned from Stuart, there's a, a power in changing your, being willing to change your mind, a power in searching for what you're wrong about, a power in admitting you're wrong, and a power in not caring too much whether you're right or wrong, not, and not getting credit as well. So there's a humbleness that, it's really weird, it's like a confident humbleness. It's a, it's a contradiction where you're confidently humble, but kind of like a Zen monk might, might have that kind of a thing, where you are, the humbleness gives you confidence in a certain sense. It gives you confidence because you're not having to prove whether you're right or wrong. You're saying it's not so important. And so, yes, I've seen, we're seeing right now, witnessing the forefront of this shift from answers to questions because we have these new 
AIs that give answers. And while they're still working on making them completely reliable, there's no doubt that they're going to be the answer machines. And it's astounding the kind of answers that they can give in a conversational interface, which is just remarkable. So like, why, yeah, yeah, why are you going to fill your head with those when you'll have them on your shoulder and any time you need an answer, you get an answer? What we're finding out already, and this comes from my daily AI art, is the question. So in a certain sense, you could say, I'm asking questions with the AI to generate this art. And we're having a conversation, we're querying the world. And the really great stuff I see, I'm collecting some really great AI art. And it's like, they asked the right question. Mm. They asked the right question. There's this one thing, I'm just, the Pope in the puffy white jacket, it was like, they asked the exact right (laughs) question. Wasn't that brilliant? So there's someone else who's doing something in white puffy, which is they're doing these inflatable versions of landmark buildings in white puffy inflatables. And they're just utterly brilliant. And it was, you know, that question, it's not the prompt, it's the question that they're asking. And that is something that's going to be hard for AI in the near term. I don't know where it's going to be over the long term, but I would say for the near term, within your lifetime, we're still going to have a tremendous advantage in asking questions because we're going to be asking questions that we know that we care about or that we're going to care more about these kind of questions. AI could, in theory, ask any possible question. You could just have it do it randomly. They don't, they aren't the, they aren't the right questions. They aren't the questions that are meaningful, that, that matter. And for the time being, we're going to be a lot better about the things that matter to us because, because we're us. So I definitely think that we're seeing that shift happening right now and being like the child asking the why question. How did you get good asking questions? And I think there's a bunch. I have different definitions for good questions. A good question has some qualities. One quality is that it engenders other questions, other good questions. So it's like a chain reaction. A really good question should unleash another round of questions, good questions, which should unleash more questions. So they should be able to start a question cascade, like the kids who ask the why. And the second thing that good questions should do is also illuminate areas where we don't know, where we're ignorant, should open up new territories that don't exist. So a really good question will reveal whole new avenues of investigation, exploration, ignorance. And so that's, and that's again, something that AIs are really good at is synthesizing what we know between things we know, but they're not good at inventing whole new areas where there isn't because they're trained on what all humans know. So they can only go within that space of plausible human knowledge. It's, they can't really get out of that because they have, they've only been trained. They're autocomplete on what we know. So going way out of what we know, they're incapable. They aren't going to answer the question of what's quantum gravity. They can't currently answer that question because we just don't have any clue. And so in that sense, a good question can help move us into that direction of, of 
areas that we don't know anything about that can bring us to new territory. So there's a bunch of different qualities about what does a good question look like. I'm really glad that you went into that in such detail because actually I want to I want to just read you something I was sharing on Twitter recently while I was trying to prompt Midjourney to give me a good dinosaur, right? And for whatever reason the body, uh, the corpus that this has been trained on has a much easier time with humans than it does with, with creatures like dinosaurs, which on the one hand have evolved in public understanding over a, a 150 yeah, yeah, yeah. Two year, almost 200 years. But also for some reason, they just can't get the, they can't get the basic vertebrate <laughs> body plan down these things are yeah, yeah, yeah. like six, eight legs or whatever. <laughs> and so I don't, and I'm sitting watching people talk about this stuff. And I just want to read you this thing because for me, the most interesting applications of text to image synthesis are those that explore the gap between intent and results, right? Between expectations and model output. Play the game like a scientist. You're using prompts to explore an opaque hyperspace with something like sonar, right? There is no such thing as a failed experiment as long as you learn something and surprise is worth more right. than getting exactly what you anticipated. Right. There, there are some people, some scientists who are beginning to do that kind of computational or I should say combinatorial search of the space to see what's inherent in make, making up kind of random prompts and seeing where they go to investigate or map out or survey this, they call it the latent space. And it is, that's what Stephen Wolfram did back in the day with his cellular automata, is he learned a lot about self-organizing systems by ex exploring combinatorially, exhaustively, all the possible outcomes that you would get from a cellular automata, just systematically. And so that's beginning to happen, where people are using prompt space to, as a kind of imagine a new territory that they're going to explore scientifically, programmatically. Because we don't actually know how that works. I did have an epiphany the other week during my mid-journey or, or Dali stuff, and, and that is that the great breakthrough through these current crop of AIs is the conversational user interface. So the fact mm -hmm. that we can converse, have a conversation with them as the interface. So a lot of the capabilities of the AIs are not new. They've been there for a couple of years. They can, they've been able to generate possible images for a while. But the really big bang that's happened this year that everybody noticed is that we have a conversational interface. We can converse with them using these large language models. They're tethered. They're, they're input. They're a portal into these very complicated machines with a conversation, which is so human. Humans, we love having a conversation like we're doing right now, right? So all things being equal, we'd rather have a conversation. That is the best way. That's one of our best interfaces. We've applied that to an AI. But here's the issue. Here's the epiphany is that I've been trying, I was trying to, I'm doing art and I'm trying to get it to do some arts, some images I have in my mind. And I am realizing that I can't describe these into words. That a lot of really great art you cannot describe in words, which mm. means that they're out of reach. Okay. So they can only produce images that are tethered to language. 
So if you want if you want to do art that transcends language, you can't use these generative models currently. But then we find the language. We could then we learn. It's like it's impossible for the economy to like true novelty is illegible right to the economy. But then gets situated, it gets registered, and then it catches up. It can catch up to it. That's that was my advice. If you're young, try to work on something where there's no name for what it is that you do. So you're ahead yeah. of language. It can catch up. It, but there is there is still today a lot of art. You could take a great painting, and there's parts of it that you won't be able to put into words that, that, that transcend. And that's not going to be captured or generated by AI because when it's, if it's in language prompt. If, we're, if we can expand that by having other interfaces, maybe like the new Photoshop where you can use images can modify, you can draw. Those begin to go beyond words. Mm-hmm. There may be other things we can do, maybe telegra- telepathically to connect with these so that we could send things that are not... Rendered an emotional state through right. a but, scan. But all yeah. I can say is that right now, as of t- this is what I'm talking about, today, right now, not that they can never, but they, today, they cannot paint everything that I can imagine because I don't have the words for because they're bound by words, by language. These sets, generative image generators, are bound to language. And therefore, for the time being, they're not going to be able to produce all the great art the humans could working. I wonder, I'm getting biblical here, but I wonder if, if we look at Genesis as, like an, as a kind of a mythos that transects Time rather than being at something, it's, it's something that's ever present. I mean, there's a naming that is always present, and that maybe where we find ourselves in the. It certainly seems this way when you're filling out a captcha, right? Yeah. yeah. That like what we're doing now, what what hu- what humans are for the machines anyway, appears to be we are providing nomenclature. We're tagging everything. Yeah, we're naming everything. Yeah, yeah, we're applying language. It's possible that the AIs might have a language that they speak between themselves. Language is a kind of a symbolic structuring. It's not, I don't think it's native to, to, to humans. We have computer languages and stuff. So it's only, and I don't think it's necessarily the paragon. I think it may be that our intuition and other forms of cognition may be useful for things that language is not. I'm just saying that currently, right now, these are bound by language. These are large language models. But it gives us a hint that there's still a long ways to go on Mm. these AI models. Okay, And I found it frustrating, actually, not being able to get the art that I wanted from from these. Because I don't, because they're transcending art. I had mine transcended language. I didn't have any words for it. But there's still plenty to do. There's still lots, uh, still fun for me. There's still so much they can do that we can't do. But again, they're training all the humans, the best and the worst of humans. So it's the average human that they're producing. It's, they're, not, they're trained to be the most plausible rather than the most accurate. So it's, there's plausible human creation. <laughs> and getting it to do something outside of it is very difficult. That's the famous thing. You, you can get a, a, an astronaut riding a horse. But it can't really make a horse riding an astronaut. It just has no, like what you're saying about the dinosaurs, it just 
has not been trained that way. That's a big leap for it. It doesn't want to go there. And that's just a simple thing. But what if you're trying to make invent cubitism that never been invented before? Impression of something brand new that humans haven't done. It's not the engine to do that. What is it about the astronaut riding a horse? Like I was actually I was commissioned by my friends who uh, own a Dow in Wyoming, right? Trying to create a a, a blockchain based rocketry mm. Dow, okay, in Wyoming and called Space Ranch, and they wanted me to make the NFTs for their membership, and they wanted a, a horse riding a horse, a, cow, a cowboy astronaut riding a, a horse, and then it showed up. It showed up in in the promotional, not mm. my images, but right, right. something very similar. And then you just brought it up, and it's like there is. Well, it was kind of a meme. It's be- it became a meme. It became a meme because it's very early on. This was not even mid journey. This was like Dali days before it was released. People who were playing around with it realized that completely unconventional things that worked against everything that you that humans normally paint or draw or talk about, that kind of unconventional arrangement was just so hard for it. And that became the kind of meme where people were trying to get a picture of it. And there were some props that you could use to force or nudge the AI to make that. But it was very complicated. And that's my experience, by the way, in working with these on a regular basis is that they're interns. These AIs are just <laughs> interns. They're personal interns. And you don't want to release the intern work. You have to check it. You have to work with it. And, and it's easy to get the interns to generate something, but to get them to obey you, to go where you're constantly nudging them and having to whisper to them and having to pretend that you are an expert. Don't give me the kind of the average human response. Give me mm-hmm. the expert response or pretend that you are a Salvador Dali and you're crazy your own acid and whatever it is. You're having to nudge them out of their comfort zone, and they are comfortable with the average human response. They can do something that the average human would take years to do, and that seems superhuman, but they still are bound within the kind of average plausible, human plausibility sphere. And so once you get out of what's plausible, it's really hard for them to do. It's funny that you brought that up because obviously like, Hollywood writers strike and right. everything. People are complaining. It's, you're, not, you're not actually taking away our jobs. You're actually giving us more work because now we have to edit this stuff that's been produced by some like, right, sub- right, right. high schooler writing. But anyway, no, I, this whole thing about the going beyond, I, I remember, and I may have brought this up with you previously, but like one of the first conversations I ever heard with you on record was a conversation that you had with Ken Wilber on AI. Mm. And you were talking about how people had it all sideways, that what really was interesting was the fact that these machine intelligences would be different from us, meaningfully different. And I'm just thinking again about another rant I went on recently about how people are asking language models to write stories like a waking mind does, then declaring Mm. their own supremacy as creators when tools structured to work like the dreaming minds spit out what have always been described by the engineers as dreams rather than as coherent waking state yeah, narratives. Yeah. And this brings us back to your book because we went on a lovely tangent sure, sure, there. It's sure, like, there's yeah. no way to have a conversation in 2023 sure, without that, talking yeah, about this. Yeah. But you've got a couple passages here. 
you learn a lot more if you ask people, how are you sleeping <laughs> instead of how are you doing? Yes. And then the other one that I, just a few pages before, if you can't tell what you desperately need, it's probably sleep. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's something, there is something, again, that child, adult, mm. human, AI, awake, asleep. Mm. I see in this year, the promise, and in this book, the encouragement of a panoply of states and an awareness that intelligence is inherently ecosystemic mm -hmm. and that there are many kinds of minds mm -hmm. and that, that we need them all. And that, mm -hmm. yes, this whole, like, just dope yourself on modafinil and stay awake forever. That's not the future of civilization, mm -hmm. but it's much more like that Douglas Rushkoff idea when he was pointing to the cyclicity of the moon's effects on human neurotransmitter release and how there are certain weeks of the month where you're more productive and certain mm -hmm. weeks of the month where you're more gabby and so on. So I'd love to just hear you speak to rhythm and mm. to and to partiality and mm. to multi-perspectivalism. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned in passing this idea of the pluralism about AIs, and that I think is an essential point that I'll just end with the AI discussion as we move into this, which is that we have to always have to talk about AIs in plural, that there's hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of them at all different levels of complexity from thumbs that are maybe not much different in the kind of the animal mind to things that are weirdly superhuman, like your calculator, who's a genius in arithmetic, but nothing else. And some of these AIs, most of them will be invisible to us. We won't even know about the most of the AIs that work behind the scenes. That's a sign of success. And there'll be some that are outward facing that we'll interact with, maybe with a language conversation interface. But there are many of them, plurals, and they're all will have different needs. It's like we have machines in our world. They're not just one machine. It's many thousands of machines. So that polarity, I think, is very important, that variety. And the last bit of advice in my book is that the advices here are not like rules. They're like hats. Try one on. If it doesn't fit, try another on. Th this idea that they're not... They're aligned with the laws of the universe, but they're not the laws of the universe. And I find seeking difference and otherness to be, going back to your question about staying curious, one of the ways to, say, to stay curious. That's why I'm a huge believer in travel. I think we've talked about travel. I think it should be subsidized. It's so important for the young. But that idea of confronting a different way of doing things, and not just intellectually, but visually, just feeling it, just absorbing it, confronting it, not being able to escape from that difference. That is incredibly important. And I think it will keep you young. It's a great way to change your mind about something. Go, if you're having a disagreement with someone else in the world, go there, meet the people, see why and inquire and ask questions about why something is the way it is. And that will keep you young. That's another way of playing with your assumptions, of questioning your own assumptions. And I would suggest, as I did in the book, the more sure you are about your assumptions, the more you need to question them. Because you are, and I am too, and you as well, are undoubtedly absolutely wrong about something. 
And in 50 years, 100 years, our descendants will look back and they'll be embarrassed by things that we believed. And I don't know what they are. If I do, I'd work on them. But it's for sure there's going to there's gonna <laughs> be one. And so the question you might have is, what are you wrong about? And that's, again, another way to stay young so you can work on changing your mind. It's funny that you went straight to the last one because that's I was that was the next thing I was going to say. But so instead of that, I will keep on with the staying young piece here and I'll just end it with a prompt. Yeah. On this aphorism, the chief prevention against getting old <laughs> is to remain <laughs> astonished. astonished. <laughs> right. Terence McKenna of course says that when, you know, he freebase DMT the machine elves said don't give in to astonishment. Don't give in to it, really. Don't give in to astonishment. Wow. We're trying to we're trying to tell you something. Pay attention. Oh, okay. Don't just be, don't just be amazed. Okay. <laughs> but like focus. Focus. Don't and you be, make a lot you yeah. make a lot of point of focus in this book as yeah, well. Yeah. It's like you don't have, you can't get more, you can't buy more time. You can work on your focus. One of the one of your statements. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. That's that true. Effect. That's true about money and the end time. But I Terrence, whom I had the privilege of knowing. I'm just trying to decompress that bit of wisdom. Don't be distracted by the astonishment. Yeah, I think I, Yeah, I think if something is important happening, you do want to not be bamboozled by the spectacle. But I find actually the harder thing, the thing that's more often missing is the astonishment itself. Maybe if you're getting, bur- getting fire-hosed <laughs> with the universe, with 5-MEO, whatever it is, okay. Don't succumb to this astonishment. But for most of us, I think we could use some more astonishment in our lives. It's like you mentioned, I think, C.K. Lewis, and he was doing this little bit about the airplane. You were, were mm. in this hollow tube flying at 500 miles an hour through. Yes, yeah, the Conan, Conan O'Brien. Yeah. And it's like people are complaining about the peanuts or whatever. It's like, we should just be astonished, amazed at what we have and what we're doing. And I think, yeah, so I think staying young is to be astonished about this ride that we're having and all the cool things that we're making and leaving plenty of room for the problems. They're not going to go away. We have to deal with them. But the problems are easy and cheap to see. The solutions, the remedies... The new things, the breakthroughs are incredibly difficult and more and more difficult to imagine. But unless we imagine them, we're not going to make them happen. And my bit of advice imparting to the viewers out there is try to imagine what you want and then believe that it's possible. And that's, I think, the only way we're going to have a great future. Yeah. Stay curious, my friend. Right, exactly. Thank you, Kevin. It was a blast, a pleasure. Thank you for your great questions. I really enjoyed this. It was really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sure. having me on your list of people to mm. pitch every time you have no a No problem. Book. There's a book for those who want to see it. <laughs> Excellent advice. Oh, by the way, I originally wanted to call it pretty good advice, but a friend of mine had actually written, used that title for the book <laughs> just recently, so I couldn't use it. I thought pretty good advice uh-huh. might work better. <laughs> yeah. This one will... this. There's going to be a, there's going to be a trove of them under the clock of the lung now. <laughs> exactly. The archaeologists will discover. Right. All right. All right take thanks. Bye bye. Take care. 
A note in parting, I will be in Boulder, Colorado on June 9th playing at the Junkyard Social Club. We're going to do a live Future Fossils taping with Ryan Madsen, co-founder of the Junkyard Social Club, and the original co-founder of Future Fossils itself, Evan Snyder, is going to join me for a live taping. We're going to have a a delicious trialogue, and then I'm going to play music, and then we're going to have a huge jam of just extraordinary musicians. I'm, there's, I have so many tricks up my sleeve for this show. If you're in Boulder on June 9th, oh my God, please come out for this. And then I will be back in Colorado again uh, for the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference. That's June 18th through the 24th. I will be around. The conference itself is June 19th through the 23rd. And... I will be representing Unify Studio, Mitch Schultz and and Shanta Stevens, uh, folks who did the DMT, the Spirit Molecule film, if you saw that, uh, as well as Michael Everett and Josiah Jordan's project, Cymatic Somatics, which is extremely exciting, light sound, transformative experience machine with LEDs and binaural audio and a vest with a subwoofer. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, thank you to the Tea Fairy for helping push this one uh, through the birth canal, as it were. And lastly, oh, stay tuned for the next episode, which is going to come real quick, with Jamie Joyce of the Society Library. This one is incredibly cool. I'm excited to share it with you. Go check out the Society Library and get yourself hyped up and then yeah thanks and that's that i love you thank you be a good ancestor